morning. Let's look to the Lord in prayer for a moment. Father, we just, again, thank you for your love. We thank you for the opportunity to sing thy praises, to worship you, to dwell upon you, how good you are. Thank you now for the opportunity to open up your word, pray for your help and wisdom to do so in a way that would glorify thee, that would accomplish your purposes, open our hearts to see the things that you'd have us to. For some of us, perhaps things that we've known for a long time, for others of us, things that might be new. We just pray for your help and your guidance, that your spirit would direct. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this summer, we are going through uh, Bible topics. We're looking at various doctrines, and we're doing that using as a starting point the Apostles' Creed, which if you've been coming many Sundays this summer, you already know about that. It's a very, very ancient uh, creed that sort of summarizes some of the great truths of the faith. We don't structure our lives or our church on that creed. We structure it, of course, on the Word of God, but it's a nice starting point. So today, the portion that we're starting from talks about belief in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. So that's what I was asked to speak about uh, today. Now, just at the onset, I should mention, when we talk about the Holy Catholic Church, as someone pointed out, that small c, not large c. Um, Catholic, if you look it up in the dictionary, has a number of meanings, and many of the meanings, not surprisingly, are associated with the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but uh, it also means something that is universal or, persuade, or per per pervasive, widespread. And so when we talk about, or when the Apostles' Creed talks about the Holy Catholic Church, it's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church, it's talking about the Holy Universal Church of God. And of course, the communion of saints, the idea of communion, you know, again, words change meanings over years. Uh, sometimes when we think of communion, you're thinking about, okay, well, well, that's the Eucharist or the Mass or the Lord's Supper or some variation of that. And that actually, that word actually has the idea of fellowship or sharing. And so what we're talking about today is what, what is the church and how does this sharing between saints play out? And mostly talking about the church, but certainly we'll be talking about that sharing of saints. So three questions that I want to look at today, and I, I hope we have a chance to look at. Um, the first one, which is the one probably we'll spend very little time in, on, is when did the church start? and a little more on time on what is its nature and purpose. So looking at the universal church, when did it come to, uh, to pass? When did it begin? Which again, that's a big topic that you could do a whole sermon on, and we're only going to spend a, a brief time on that. And, and then what is it meant to be like? What are we as the church, as part of the universal church, what does God really want for us? Uh, the next question flowing out of that will be, what is the local church, and where can we find a pattern for its functioning? And then the last one, would be, when should we be meeting together as a church, and why is that important? Now, what I'm hoping that everyone has is a copy of this handout. Um, so this is a handout. It's sort of basic on one side and filled with text on the other. So the filled with text side is going into a lot of detail on the origin of the church and how the church came to be. Um, so if you're interested in getting detail on that, at least as I understand it based on the Word of God, feel free to, to read that handout, and it'll give you the detail that you are looking for. Um, the other side is just mostly an open outline that you can just write and, and put information in about. Okay, so let's turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to be going through a pretty fair number of scriptures today and covering a lot of ground, so I might at times move quick, but I hope I don't move too quickly. So Ephesians chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 25. Um, now, this is a passage, by the way, that talks about husbands and wives and marriage, and it's not uncommon to have this passage read at a Christian wedding. Uh, when I got married many years ago, uh, this was one of the main passages that was read and was spoken on, actually by Doug Hagen, who performed the uh, ceremony. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Skipping to verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. We live in a very individualistic culture. Everything, to a large degree, is about the individual. We don't tend to think of groups 
uh, quite as much as we do about the individual. How do we feel about things? Where do we fit into the whole scheme of our community or of our world? That tends to be the way our culture works. That's not, that's not the way every culture works, mind you, but that's the way our culture tends to work. And so when we think about the Christian life, we very often are thinking about, well, where do I stand in relation to God, and what should I be doing, and what are the blessings I have? And, and that's all well and good, but we forget the larger picture. We're, we're, we're failing to see the forest for the trees, so to speak. And the larger picture is the church of God. And I would argue that the church of God is a very important thing for us to understand. When you look in this passage in Ephesians 5, you see of it that it says Christ loved the church. It doesn't say that Christ loved individual believers. He did, and he does. Um, the Apostle Paul could say in Galatians, the son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me, and that's a, a wonderful truth. But Christ also loved the church. He sees the church. We, we see a bunch of individuals. He sees the church as one living being made up of all believers who know him as Savior, and he loves that church, and he died in the place of that church, and he's concerned about sanctifying that church and making that church perfect and glorious and wonderful, and he's looking forward to the day that that church will be presented to him as his bride. And if you want to read more about that, you can look at Revelation 19, looking forward to the future when that actually is going to happen. Um, so Christ cares deeply about the church. The church, of course, which is made up of the various members, and we are the members of his body, the church. And so if Christ cared about the church, I would argue it's vitally important that we care about the church and that we understand more about what the church of God really, really is. So again, uh, the first point I want to look at as we think about that is when did the church start and what is its nature and purposes? Uh, so, first of all, the word church. The word church is an English word that's taken from a Scottish word, kirk, um, and it's probably not the best way to translate the word church in the scripture. The word church in the scripture in the Greek is a word called ekklesia. Um, ekklesia, which very, if you speak Spanish, you know there's a very, very similar word in Spanish for church. Um, ekklesia has the idea of an assembly or a called out gathering. We are a called out gathering of people called out for the Lord Jesus. And so, ecclesia um, is the original word. And I tend to use the word assembly a lot of times. I'll, I'll probably switch off sometimes, and I'll use the word church because I'm so used to that sometimes from books I read and such. But probably assembly is a, is a nice word that helps to better get the meaning of things. Um, the Lord Jesus, in talking about his ecclesia, his church, in Matthew 16, 18, said, I will build my church. So that gives us something of a time frame for the church. That tells us that the church was yet future when he said those words during his ministry here on earth. This is before his death. Um, I would argue uh, that there's probably good reason to believe that the birthday, quote-unquote, of the church is the day of Pentecost, about seven weeks after the death of the Lord Jesus. That's the day that the apostles and the other believers, about 120 people, you can read about this in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Um, the number is in Acts chapter 1. The, the event is in the beginning of Acts chapter 2. They were gathered together. The Spirit of God came down, filled them. They spoke you know, visibly in other languages, which was a sign that something amazing had happened. And by comparing that with other, with other passages, you'll find that, that that was the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which the Lord had predicted beforehand and now was being fulfilled, and that was what basically took, took these individual believers and joined them together to the Lord Jesus Christ, members of his amazing body, the church, and that, I believe, was the birthday of the church. And again, I'd love to go into that more, and I had a whole page worth of stuff to talk about, but we'd probably be here till at least 1230, so I didn't think that was a great idea. So I punted that information to the handout. I, don't look at it now, um, because if you do, you won't hear anything else that I say, and what I say isn't necessarily useful, but hopefully some of what I'm saying is what God wants you to hear, and that you do want to hear. Uh, but take a look at that if you want more information. So the church began, certainly I think it's very clear that it came based on the work of Christ and after the death of Christ. Again, I think it's at Pentecost. You might disagree with me. Um, but then the question is, okay, so, so great, we, we have the church. What is it meant to be? What's its nature? What are its purposes? Well, for one thing, um, there is one body of which Christ is ahead, and all of us, as it said in Ephesians, are members of that one body. Well, well, 
And how do, you, how do you get into that one body? Well, you get into that one body by faith in Christ, right? I mean, if it's believers in Christ, those who have put their faith in him, who are members of his body, then the way you join the church is by putting your faith in Christ. You don't join the church by giving money. You don't join the church by going to certain meetings. You don't go to church by agreeing to a certain creed like the Apostles' Creed or any other. You join the church of God, and I'm talking about the universal church. You join that church by virtue of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul in Acts chapter 20 describes this as salva- describes salvation as repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We repent. We realize that I'm a sinner. I've been going the wrong direction, whether in a big public way or in you know, more subtle ways, and that I need a Savior and that the Lord Jesus Christ died in my place. And by faith, I put my faith in him. Um, so that's how we enter the church. We become members of his body by faith, and it's believers and only believers that are members of his church because it's only believers who he views as joined to him. So you can go through all the forms that you want, but if you don't know Christ, you're not a member of his church, regardless of what others say about you or what you think of yourself. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13 An important passage on this says, for even as the body, that is talking about the church, is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so, although we come from diverse backgrounds, it talks here about Jews or Greeks. Those were wildly diverse religious and cultural backgrounds, male and female. Again, differences there. But all these various people, by faith, are joined to Christ by virtue of faith in him and the work of the Holy Spirit in baptizing them and and bringing them into this one body, the church. And so the church is one body of which Christ is the head. It's useful, by the way, probably to, to think about, well, what does a head do? Okay, well, we'll think about what, what your head does, right? What does my head do? Well, my head sort of supervises what's going on in the rest of my body. Um, my head looks after the welfare of my body, you know, autonomic nervous system, endocrine system, wonderful things like that. Um, it looks after how our body functions. It directs the actions of our body. So these are the types of, of things that we can think about the head of the church, the Lord Jesus, doing. He looks after us. He protects us. He provides for us. He guides us. He keeps things functioning the way it's supposed to. So, so the Lord Jesus is our head, and we are members of his body. Next, the church is holy, and the church is meant to be holy. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? You know, there was a holy temple in Old Testament times, you know, and it was meant to be a holy place. Well, now we're the temple. We're the temple of God. The church is described as the temple of God. And it says, if any man destroys the temple of God, that is the church, or seeks to, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Now, this is talking that the you, if you the you in that verse, and there's many yous, those are all in the plural. So it's not saying we individually, as individual people, are the temple of God, although there are verses that talk about that idea. But this is describing us as the church of God, and the church of God is meant to be holy. So we are meant to be holy, which is natural because we have a holy Savior, and if the church is meant to reflect our Savior, then the church needs to be holy if it's going to reflect our Savior. Just one side note on that, by the way. We, We sometimes have a very deficient idea of what holy is. We think of holy as sort of this standard that I get in trouble if I don't meet. And we don't realize that holy has to do with being separate and being special and being righteous and being in the, in the likeness of the Lord. Holiness is a good thing. Holiness is not something what I have to do. Holiness is being all that God ever meant us to be, um, and he wants us to be holy. The Holy Spirit is the representative of Christ in the church. That's another important truth about the church, and that's one, fortunately, that I don't feel the need to dwell a lot on because our brother Kevin actually spoke on that uh, just last week. The Holy Spirit has many, many ministries, but part of those ministries have to do with teaching 
and guiding into the church of God. And so the Holy Spirit is Christ's uh, representative in the church. Um, in the church, there are gifts, gifts that are given for the edification and building up of the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. He gave some as apostles, by the way, the he is the Lord Jesus. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And so again, if the Lord is our head, if he's in charge, then he's going to be vitally concerned with us having the guidance and the knowledge and the ability and the resources that we need to grow both numerically and in likeness to him as individuals, but also as a church. And so he's not going to leave us helpless. He's going to give us what we need. And part of what he gives through his spirit is he gives these, these gifted um, people who are gifted as apostles or prophets, tend to think that those were foundational gifts based on other scriptures that I'm not going to go into that were really meant for the time where the church was being established and the New Testament was still being written. And so in, in the strictest sense of the word, I, I don't think you're probably going to find people who are gifted as apostles and prophets in the original sense of the word, but then some as evangelists, and there are certainly uh, men and women who are evangelists today, some who are pastors some who are teachers, and that word pastor is the idea of a of shepherd, someone who exercises shepherd care over the people of God, sort of like uh, Peter was told in John chapter 21 by the Lord Jesus, feed my sheep, take care of other believers. And there are men and women who are given this wonderful gift to exercise shepherd care over the people of God. So these are gifts that God gives, and he doesn't give these gifts so that these people, of course, can just go out and do all the work. That's what many churches would say. Yes, there's a pastor, and, and they do the preaching and the shepherding, and then there's evangelists like Billy Graham, and, and, and they lead people to Christ, and, and the rest of us, well, I guess we send money in, um, you know, and we pray for them and whatever. Um, but, but the idea is that they're equipping the saints for the work of service. Yes, evangelists are going to lead people to Christ. They almost can't help doing that. And pastors are going to, to, to shepherd people, and teachers are going to teach, and that's all good. But a prime goal of those people is to reproduce themselves and to teach other people how to reach um, people for Christ and to teach other people how to shepherd and care and to teach other people the word of God that they might teach others. Um, and that's something that's really, really important, and again, that we have sort of lost sight of a little bit. Uh, and I'm not saying necessarily we just individually here at Terra Road, but talking about the church universal, because at this point, I'm, I'm still talking about the church universal. I'll get to the local church eventually. Um, all believers are priests of God. Um, that was radical at the time. In 1 Peter 2, chapter, um, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5, um, it says, You also, as living stones, speaking of individual believers that are part of the church, are being built up as a spiritual house. A building is often an illustration of the church. Are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we're priests. And that's very, very different, of course, from what was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if you want to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron. Okay? Aaron was the high priest, and his sons became high priests after him, and all the various descendants of Aaron were the ones who had the priesthood. And if you wanted to be a priest, you needed to be descended from Aaron. If you weren't descended from Aaron, you couldn't be a priest. And, and they were special people. They had special clothing. They went through special rituals. And if you wanted to offer a sacrifice to God, you couldn't just do it yourself. You had to come to the priest. And the priest would offer the sacrifice on your behalf and pray on your behalf. Does that sound, by the way, at all familiar? Or, or do we know of any groups who, who do similar things today? And I'm not here, by the way, in any way, shape, or form to, to you know, shoot down any particular group there is no group, we'll get to this when we look at the local church, there is no local church or group of local churches that is perfect. None of us are. Um, but the priesthood in the Old Testament came to an end at the death of Christ. He sacrificed God in a perfect way, in a way that was totally acceptable to God, and he became the great and only and final high priest, and we don't need any other. And so at this point in history, in God's eyes, yes, there are still priests. I mean, there's one great high priest, that's the Lord Jesus in glory. But there are those who function as priests in worshiping 
him in bringing sacrifices, whether of money, of praise, of, of, of worship of their lips. Um, but that's everyone in the church. All believers are priests. All believers can function as priests, and we don't need special clothes, vestments, or anything like that. But all believers have this privilege and responsibility to be able to come directly to God and, and, and pray. It's a powerful thing, by the way. You know, if you have friends who aren't believers and, and they're struggling in some way, it, it depends on the relationship, but, but you can say, well, would you like me to pray, pray for you? You know, I, I really care about you. You know, let, let me pray for you. You know, and that's a strange thing for many people. What, you can talk to God? Well, yes, and, and I'd be happy to, to talk to God and, and, and seek his help and blessing for you, and that, that can be a powerful thing. We are priests. And then last but not least, um, and of course there's other things that could be said, but these are some important truths about the church. We are those who should be following God's word and engaging in fellowship and worship and prayer. And, and sort of the key verse on that one, very early on, uh, the day of Pentecost, um, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they, that is the believers, were continually devoting themselves to four things, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, being together with one another, um, to the breaking of bread, that would be the Lord's Supper, time of worship and remembrance and praise, which we'll talk about more later, um, and to prayer. So, so those were four important foundational things that the church engaged in, and we should be engaged in both individually and as members of the local church. So then that brings us to the question of what is the local church and where can I find a pattern for its functioning? Because these truths I've just said, they're true of the universal church. And they are true of the universal church, whether we believe them or not, whether we understand them or not, whether we care about them or not, regardless of what kind of church we're physically residing in and, and functioning in, these things are still true. But then the question becomes, well, yes, but what is really meant, what is a local church, what's it meant to be? Now, there's a lot of definitions for a local church. Probably the simplest one is it's a group of believer, believers, a group of believers in Christ who are all, of course, members of the universal church who are gathered together in one local place to worship and serve the Lord, functioning as a local body of believers. And you could get a lot more sophisticated than that, but to me, that, that's good enough. Ideally, I think ideally, it should be all believers in a given area. That is, I think, in, in a perfect world, and you know we don't live in a perfect world, but in a perfect world, there should be just one maybe church in, in Fanwood or you know, within a reasonable area, um, and then in the next area over, there would be one church. There's a lot of divisions and schisms and problems that have crept in, and so that perfect reality, unfortunately, doesn't end up happening. So, in the 19th century, a long, long time ago, there were a group of believers in, uh, in the UK, in the United Kingdom, who became very disenchanted with the state of the local churches for a variety of reasons. Um, which, in a sense, makes me feel good because, you know, we can look around and see things we don't like. And, well, this was like, let's see, coming up on 200 years ago, well over 150 years ago. And they looked around and saw things that they felt were just really not quite right, um, which, again, makes me feel better in some perverse way. Um, they were imperfect people, okay? They, they, these weren't, you know, perfect people who had halos over their head. They were imperfect people, but they had a noble goal, and their goal was they felt that what the ch a local church should be, should be an ex it should be a local expression of what the universal church is. That is, how whatever the universal church of God is, as much as possible, the local church should be following that pattern. That's what the church should be like. You know, all the things that we talked about, one body, Christ the head, gifts given for edification, priesthood of all believers, the Holy Spirit leading and guiding in all things, all those various things that we talked about that characterize the universal church should also characterize each and every local church or local assembly. Um, and, and that sort of makes sense even just from the way we think about things, doesn't it? I mean, think about this for a second. If you have a company or a retail outlet or whatever, typically the company CEO and the upper management, they set the tone, don't they? They're the ones who set the tone for the mission, for the values and for the methods of that particular firm. Again, whatever the business is, is it an insurance company, you know, retail, you know, whatever it is, manufacturing, they set the tone for everything and they will expect that each individual branch 
or retail outlet or whatever local expression there is of that company, the expectation is that they're going to reflect that. They're going to reflect the missions and the values and the prescribed methods of basically you know, the CEO and, and, and his staff. Well, our CEO is the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and he's come up with an idea, a very good idea, of what he expects his church to be. I think it's only reasonable to think that the local church should be trying to figure out, okay, well, what is his mission? What are his values? What are his methods? And as much as possible, following that as a local expression of the church. So where do we find a pattern? Well, like in everything, we go to the Word of God to find a pattern. Uh, very familiar scripture, 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All scripture is inspired by God, and all scripture is what we need, is what we desperately need. When we came to Christ, we came to Christ by faith, but we came to Christ with a rational faith. We, we used our minds. Um, you know, we didn't close our eyes and just have something happen to us, but we came to understand who God is, his holiness, our sin, who the Lord Jesus is, what he did in, in great love and dying in our place for us that we could be forgiven. We understood the resurrection meant that his offering had been accepted, and we've come to put our faith in him. We are called, I believe, to that same type of rational faith where, faith where we are continually in the word of God saying, Lord, what would you have for us? Individually, yes, but also as a local church. What do you want us to be doing? What do you want us to be doing? And we want the word of God to color our thoughts and our understanding, not the secular culture around us, which is you know, on its way down into a deeper and deeper cesspool, um, and, and not even the Christian culture around us, because just because the church down the block, and I'm not literally talking about the church down the block, because there are some churches down the block, and maybe they're great churches, I don't really know them very well, but, but not the church down the block, but what should we be doing, Lord, based on your word? Um, I personally became very convicted of that. I, I was saved as a young man. I was 22 years old when I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I ended up in an assembly that, you know, historically traced its roots back to that, those groups back in the UK in the 1900s, which, by the way, as many of you know, this assembly does also. Um, and I found myself in there meeting with them and doing things their way, but I just had this hunger to know for myself, what does the Bible have to teach about all this stuff? Because I don't want to just do things because someone gets up and preaches in a persuasive way about what we should do, or because someone writes an interesting book. I want to do things because it's what the Word of God has to say. And I, I spent a year going through the New Testament and annotating every time I found something that talked about the church, universal or local, I'd make a note of it. And then I spent the next three years, not steady, on and off, a lot of offs, but I spent the next three years studying uh, those notes I had made to try to come to an understanding of, of what the Word of God teaches about the local church. And I have some convictions about that that I'm going to share with you. But again, I urge you, and if, I hope I remember to say this again at the end, don't just take what I say as gospel truth. Okay, don't just, you know, buy it because, well, you know, he said it and he sounds pretty persuasive and he said that he studied the Bible for four years, so we really should listen to what he has to say. You know, get into the Word of God for yourself and come to an understanding of what the Word of God teaches and then live that out because that's your responsibility before the Lord. Anyway, I came up with some, some ideas of what I thought the local church would be. And by the way, one key question, um, and I can tell you where I fell out on this question, is where do we take our authority? Uh, certainly almost everyone would agree that the letters of the New Testament, most but not all of those written by Paul, we should certainly take those as authoritative as far as what the church is and what it should be like. But then when it comes to the book of Acts, some people question, well, you know, that's just a historical record. We don't need to pay too much attention to that. And I personally don't feel that that's the case. I mean, God's given us this rather large, lengthy 28-chapter book I don't think it's just for intellectual curiosity. I think he really means us to learn from it and follow the things that we learn. And if we see examples of the local church in the book of Acts, as long as there's nothing within the context that indicates that it's not a good thing, we should probably be seeking to follow those examples because that's the only example we have of what the local church should be like. 
And so I think those examples actually are important to follow. So here's quickly, because I can see my time's going to run away from me. Um, here's quickly a number of different things that are true of the universal church and I think should be reflected in the local church. One is the fact that we are one body in Christ. We are one body in Christ. That means that we are joined with every single believer throughout the world. Okay. Now, yes, some groups may call themselves Catholics. Some groups may call themselves Presbyterian. Some groups may call themselves Lutheran or Methodist or Independent Bible Fellowships or Christian Missionary Alliance or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, if there are true believers in that group, and, and yes, there's probably more true believers in some groups than others, but if there are true believers in that group, then they are, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to believe that and act on that reality. So accordingly, as a result of that, there's a couple of things that flow out of that. One is, um, it's probably good to avoid, where possible, taking a distinguishing name apart from that. Now, the early brethren, you know, back in the UK, way back when, you know, they became known eventually as the Plymouth Brethren, but that was because they refused to refer to themselves as anything except for brethren or believers or disciples or other biblical names, <coughs> but people need labels. And so eventually people started calling them, well, who are they? Well, they're, they're the brethren from Plymouth. And then after a while, of course, that got just shortened down to they're the Plymouth Brethren. Um, well, we're the brethren from Fanwood or from Terror Road or whatever. Um, but I think it's good where possible to avoid this us and them type mentality. Yes, we are gathered together in a local church. Yes, we may be convicted about how we should be gathering as a local church. And that might differ from the convictions of some of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we are still one with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to have have that um, idea. Uh, that also has to do with who we welcome into our assembly. We should be willing to welcome anyone who, by what they say and how they live, makes it clear that they know Christ as Savior, and they're attempting, however imperfectly, to live for and by him. We don't wait until someone's perfect, obviously, or else this place would be empty. I wouldn't be here either, um, so it would be truly empty, um, but we should welcome those who Christ has welcomed. Each assembly, if Christ is the head, then each assembly is directly responsible to the Lord Jesus for, for direction. We should be humbly seeking him for direction in what we do and how we do it. You know, we all love that verse, or I think most of us do. Uh, in Proverbs, it says, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That's certainly true individually, um, it's a wonderful thing to learn to do, but it's true also, again, as a corporate body, as a church. When we make decisions about what we're going to do, how we're going to meet, how we're going to do things, what are our priorities, um, we should really be searching the word of God and humbly broken before the Lord Jesus, asking him through his spirit to guide and direct our path because we believe he's actually the head of the church. We're not just doing lip service to that, but we actually believe it and we want to live that out. Because, by the way, that is a key thing. You know, you can follow everything that I'm saying if you agree with it. You can say, okay, we're going to do all those things, and, okay, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this. Well, that's wonderful, but if it's nothing but just, you know, do's and don'ts, that doesn't really matter very much. Where are our hearts? We need to really believe these things and be living them out honestly before the Lord, or else I would say I'm not sure if they're of all that much value. Um, if the Lord Jesus, as the head of the church, has yet given gifted people, um, then we should allow those people to serve, okay? Um, he has given people spiritual gifts to allow them to serve both locally and, and beyond, and we should be encouraging that to happen. We should be encouraging believers to use the spiritual gifts that God has given them to, to recognize them, to develop them, and to use them for his glory and for the blessing of the church. To just have a single person, and you know, the clergy laity system is probably one of the worst things that has hap ever happened to the church. Because even if you have a, a good and godly person who is the pastor or minister or whatever you call them, even if they love the Lord and they're well-trained, they're one person. How much can they possibly do? They're one person talking to maybe 30, 40, 50, 100, 500, 1,000 people who are sitting and warming those pews. They can't do all that much. They are very limited in what they can do. But those 100 people listening, that's a lot. They can do a lot. The Lord has given gifts. It's our responsibility to, as much as possible, try to figure out, well, what gift has he given us and try to use it? 
Let me give you a piece of advice that was given to me as a young man, and it's proven to be a great piece of advice. Well, I'll give you two pieces of advice, and one's original with me. Uh, the one is, please don't sit around waiting until you figure out what your spiritual gift is to get busy and serve the Lord. You'll figure it out as time goes on. You know, get busy, and as the Lord gives opportunity and seems to lead in your heart, get busy serving him. And the reason for that, of course, is what other people have told me is that if you want to know what your spiritual gift is, try different things out. You know, do you think you might be gifted in teaching? Fine, look for an opportunity to teach. You don't need to get up and preach to have an opportunity to teach. You can find little opportunities to teach. You, inevitably, you can. See whether or not the Lord seems, seems to bless as you do that. Do you feel that the Lord has blessed you with the ability to do evangelism? Well, then go out and try to win souls for Christ and see how that goes as you try different things out. You know, whatever you feel your gifts are, um, you'll find out what they are. And, and we need to encourage people to do that. That, of course, means also encouraging people to sometimes leave our assembly so they can go and serve elsewhere, as, as this assembly has done. Um, besides the fact that each believer is gifted, each believer is also a priest before God. Um, we are um, priests of God. We are those who have the, the privilege and the opportunity to worship him. And we should use those opportunities preeminently, perhaps, in the Lord's Supper, but not only there. And, and I'm going to come back to that. Uh, I'm going to make time no matter what to come back to that. Um, we should be actively witnessing and sharing Christ with others. Um, the Lord Jesus said that all authority had been given to him in heaven and earth, and therefore we should go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that he's commanded them. Um, we need to be doing that. We need to be actively going out and winning souls. Some people in the past have felt that the church was someplace where you invite people in to hear the gospel. Well, if people come in and hear the gospel, that's great. But primarily, I don't see the church as the lighthouse analogy. You know, we're a lighthouse to the community or whatever. Um, if, if that helps you, that's great. I see the church more as a filling station. You come in, you know, you grow, you learn the word of God, you get convicted and encouraged and equipped, and then you go out and you win souls for Christ, and you lead them to a knowledge of him. And then, you know, if they're local, you can bring them in and help build them up and disciple them here as part of the local church. But we need to have that vision to be going out and leading people to Christ as a local church. Um, real quickly, because I do want to move on to talking a little bit more about the Lord's Supper. Um, leadership, if Christ is the head, we're not going to have a single leader. Um, the biblical model is actually multiple leaders, a multiplicity of leadership, elders, Anytime you see the word elder, or just about every time you see it um, in the Bible, it's in the plural in the New Testament. There was a multiplicity of elders under shepherds serving the chief shepherd um, who God uh, has equipped. Um, giving, giving. I'm not going to stand up here and spend much time talking about money because we don't have the time for that. But giving is a privilege. We should see giving as a privilege, and this is not a call for you to increase your giving at this church if you, if you go here normally. This is a call for us to have the mindset of giving is an act of worship, and it is a privilege that we have. Do you notice we don't have an offering here? If this is the only meeting you go to, you're never going to see an offering basket, ever, okay? Because we only have offerings at the Lord's Supper. That's because the Lord's Supper is the place where only believers are expected to be there, and of course, all believers are uh, uh, welcome to come there, and giving is a privilege reserved for believers in the Lord Jesus. If you don't know Christ as Savior, no offense, but we don't want your money, because if you don't know Christ as Savior, you can't worship him, and giving is an act of worship, and he doesn't need the money of the unsaved but we who know Christ have the privilege of giving to him, which is wonderful. There's other things we could talk about. There's the roles of men and women, separate, you know, distinct, and yet equal certainly in value before the Lord, but that's a whole other topic, which I don't have time now for. Uh, the importance of corporate prayer and gathering for prayer together as an assembly. All these are important things. Do we follow these perfectly here at Terra Road? Does anyone think we follow these perfectly? I don't. Um, I have often said, I, I, you know, I've never found the perfect church, and if I do, I will stay away from it, because why ruin, why ruin a good thing? Because as soon as I get there, it won't be perfect anymore, right? And, and, but that's true of all of us. We're imperfect people, we, but we, we, that's not an excuse, because sometimes that becomes an excuse. Well, we're not perfect anyway, so we don't really need to bother trying. No, we should strive to see what's the pattern in the Bible for what a local church should be like. What can we do as believers, individually and corporately, to fulfill that pattern? 
knowing we won't do it perfectly, but we still want to do what we can for the Lord Jesus. Last thing I want to discuss, and someone told me before that it's okay if I go over, and I said, no, it's not, but now I'm going to accept what they said. I'm looking at you, Rocco. Um, that doesn't mean I'm going to preach until 1230, um, but I may go just a few minutes over because I, this has really been heavily on my heart, and I really want to share this. I think it's important. Um, the breaking of bread, Lord's Supper, whatever name you want to have for the meeting that we have um, here at 915 is a wonderful and important meeting. Now, the meeting of the local church, again, we don't have time. You could look at 1 Corinthians 14, um, which describes a meeting that was not perfect, that had issues, because probably largely because of the gift of tongues and how some people were misusing it. Um, but that doesn't mean it was an unimportant meaning. And it doesn't mean that the things that Paul said about it were unimportant. It seemed to be an open meeting where there was certainly worship, and the breaking of bread was almost certainly a part of that meeting, probably the focus of it, and I'll give you why I think that in a moment. Uh, but there was also the freedom, because people have various gifts, and all are priests of God, uh, to be able to worship and to praise, to give out a hymn to, or a psalm, as they said back then, uh, to open up the word of God, to lead the hearts of, of uh, the believers out in prayer. That was a wonderful opportunity. Now, we have split things out, and that's okay. You know, we, we don't have just one meeting now. We have, we have multiple meetings. We have the Lord's Supper at 9.15, and then we have a singing and preaching service at 11 o'clock, and other times of the year, we have a fellowship luncheon, and then we have another service after lunch, which very often takes the character more of a Bible study. That's, that's all okay. I mean, as long as we're still doing the same things, I think it's okay to split things out a little bit. But I don't think we should forget the Lord's Supper. Um, Acts chapter 20, verses 6 and 7. Uh, this is talking about Paul with many companions. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, and, and I'm going to stop right there. So they came to Troas, and they hung out for a week. doesn't even say that he did anything, that he preached or anything out. They just hung out for a week. Now, now, Paul was on the clock, and if you read further on in, in the passage, you'll find out that he was just really pushing, 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 because he wanted to get to Jerusalem at a certain time. So he was not just like chill, laid back, hey, it's a nice town, I'll stay here for a week. No, he was really on the clock. So why did he stay there for a week? Well, it's undoubtedly because he wanted to be there for the breaking of bread and to meet with the believers there. It's probably fairly strong evidence that they met together once a week. Okay, so why we're not told we have to meet every week, I think that was probably the pattern in the, Old Te in the uh, New Testament to have the Lord's Supper, and I think it's, it's a good pattern. Um, notice it also says we were gathered together to break bread. Now, Paul ended up speaking, and he preached until midnight, and I'm not going to do that, fortunately. Uh, but he preached until midnight. No one told him that he had to stop, um, but he probably wasn't going to be back there again, perhaps ever. And he knew that, and they knew that, and so that was why they said, brother, just preach as long as, as, as you want to. Um, but they weren't gathered together to hear Paul, as important as that was. Me, I, I would drive a long way to hear the Apostle Paul, but that's not why they were there. They were there to break bread. That was the primary reason why they gathered. I would argue that the breaking of bread is the primary reason that we should gather together as believers week by week. It's not that other things are unimportant, but remembering the Lord Jesus in the way that he commanded and asked us to, I think, is vitally important. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, uh, therefore, verse 20, Paul says, therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's criticizing them there. You know, you should be gathering together to eat the Lord's Supper, but you've got other things on your mind. Then it goes on in verse 23 to says, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, representing his life poured out for us. As often as you drink it, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you drink the bread, excuse me, eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The implication, again, of course, is that the primary reason they were gathering was the Lord's Supper. And what did the Lord's Supper consist of? Well, 
at least five things I see here. For one thing, it's an act of obedience. The Lord said for us to do this. That doesn't mean it becomes optional. If the Lord is the head of the church, and if we consider him to be our Lord, then what he asks us to do, we ought to do. So that doesn't mean we say, well, yeah, I know, I should be at the Lord's Supper, but it's so early in the morning, and it's such a pain to try to get there, and whatever. And I've been there. Unfortunately, I have to say, there's been times where for years at a shop, I rarely, if ever, made it to the Lord's table. Um, you know, we're all at different places in our lives spiritually and in understanding the word of God and being willing and able to obey various things that the Lord's asked us to do. But yet we need to take this seriously because it is something he asked us to do. It's an act of obedience and it's an act of remembrance. Twice over, he said, as we do this, we're remembering him. It's an act of remembering who the Lord Jesus is. Have you ever been to a memorial service um, and as you were there, you know, someone died, maybe someone that you knew to some degree, and you went to the memorial service and you're listening, especially if it's a Christian memorial service, and you're listening to what they have to say and you're like, wow, this, is, this, this was like an amazing person. I wish I had known this person or I wish I had known them better. You know, sometimes I wish we could have memorial services before people die because then you could find out all these amazing and wonderful things about them and then enjoy a relationship with them based on that. Um, but this is a memorial service for the Lord Jesus. And the cool thing about it is we get to learn and dwell more about him, and he's not dead. He's alive. And so the things we learn about him really do enrich our relationship with him. It's an hour every week where you get to do nothing but think about Jesus. I mean, just think about how wonderful that is, an hour of nothing but thinking about Jesus. It's amazing. We proclaim his death, pictured in the bread and in the wine or in the cup. You know, sometimes it's wine, sometimes it's grape juice. I don't think it matters that much personally. Um, we proclaim his death, uh, pictured in the bread and in the cup. We have fellowship with one another, and that's actually from another passage, 1 Corinthians 10. Looking at the time, I'm not going to read that passage. Um, but we have fellowship with one another. That's why sometimes that meeting uh, by some groups is referred to often as communion, because it's a time of sharing, and the best fellowship you can have is centered in the Lord Jesus. And then it's also until he comes, it's an anticipation of his return. So just thinking about this from a practical point of view, look, I know the Lord's Supper is early. It's 9.15, okay, 9.15, that's early. And, you know, for some of us, Sunday is like the only day of the week or one of the only days of the week that we get to sleep in at least a little bit. So it, it's tough. It's tough sometimes to get up and come. It takes discipline. Sometimes it means getting to bed, either getting to bed earlier on, on a Saturday night, which can be challenging, or being willing to get up early even when you're tired on a Sunday morning, which is also challenging. Um, but again, it's a wonderful opportunity, and the Lord has called us to do it. It can be difficult sometimes to get here. Logistically, it can be difficult for some people to get here, especially if you don't drive, and maybe you're not close by. And I would tell you, please, if you're dying to come to the Lord's Supper, and the reason you can't come is because you can't get here, say something. I mean, there's no guarantee that any given person will be able to help you, but, you know, we, we can talk, and maybe we can fix something up and find a way to get you here. Um, because, you know, it is logistically difficult for some people. If you're a man, now look, all of us are priests, are holy priests before God. But again, there are differences in roles between men and women. It has obviously nothing to do with value, um, but it does have to do with different functional roles. And as I understand the scripture, it's the men who have the responsibility, and it's a scary responsibility, to lead out the hearts of the saints in worship, whether that's giving out a hymn, whether that's praying, whether that's reading a scripture without comment, whether that's reading a scripture with comment, whatever it is, it's the men who have that responsibility. First of all, if you're a woman, you can still be worshiping. I mean, the men are too. Only one man at a time is, is saying anything at best, and that means all the, the rest of the men in the audience are doing the same thing that the women are, at least they should be. We should be worshiping and learning of our Lord Jesus and dwelling on him and obeying him and appreciating him um, silently. Um, so all of us have the chance to do that, whether you're vocal or not. If you're a man, you have the additional privilege and responsibility of being involved in, in leading out the hearts of the saints. And that can be a scary thing. I used to freeze up. My stomach used to get in knots at just the thought of standing up. Even just, even just giving out a hymn. I couldn't do it because it's scary. What are people going to think of me? Did someone else already do something that was too similar? Um, you know, is my voice going to shake? You know, am I living the kind of life I should? Because maybe they're going to say, sit down. 
you know, I, you, you, you think these things. You think these things. Um, and I would encourage you, if you're a man here, come to the Lord's table and be willing to participate vocally. Not every man needs to every week. If everyone did, we probably wouldn't be able to fit it all in. But there's a lot of times a long silence sometimes. Silence is okay. Silence is an opportunity to silently worship the Lord. No problem with that. But you know, during that time of silence, maybe you should be asking the Lord, Lord, is there something you want me to do? Do you want me to, to give out a hymn? Do you want me to give thanks just in general for what you've done or maybe specifically for the bread or the cup, if that seems to be the leading of the Spirit of God? Do you want me to read a scripture, maybe without comment, maybe with comment? You know, I would encourage you to have the courage to obey the leading of the Spirit and be willing and able to do that, even if it's not something that you're comfortable with. Because a lot of people aren't comfortable. I've gotten to the point now, I'm pretty comfortable with it. Maybe I talk too much sometimes in the breaking of bread. Um, but, you know, you, you should be willing to do this. It's a wonderful opportunity. So, in conclusion, because I, I think I really do need to conclude at this point, um, search the Scriptures. I, I strongly encourage you, search the Scriptures for yourself. You don't necessarily need to do it the way I did it, but be in the Word of God to seek to understand what, what is the church, well, in general, where do you fit into it individually, of course, and what's the local church supposed to be like, and, and how can I be a part of that? Search the scriptures to figure that out. There's good books out there that can help you. I'm, I just read The Chief Meeting of the Church by John Reed, which I can't believe after all these years I never read it before, and it was a good book. I enjoyed it, and I learned a lot from it. I appreciate it. Um, and I never read it before. I'm glad I did. And I'm in the middle of rereading, um, what's the name of it? Christ Love the Church um, by Willie McDonald. Great book. I'm learning a lot from that. It's a wonderful book. And there's other good books out there. There's nothing wrong with good books, but they shouldn't take the place of studying the Word of God for yourself. Study the Word of God for yourself. Form your own convictions. Become, if, you're, if you don't know Christ as Savior, obviously, by the way, Really, the only thing you should be getting out of this message, you know, it should be like Charlie Brown. Most of what I say really is probably, wah, 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 wah. that's probably most of what I say. And that's okay, because the only thing you really need to be hearing is, I need to know Christ. Because you can't be part of the church, you can't serve, you can't worship, you can't give until you know Christ. And he died, he died to redeem you. Um, and so if you don't know Christ, of course, that's really what you need. You need Christ. But if you are a believer, consider how you become, can become more a part of this local church, coming to the Lord's table, remembering and worshiping him there, finding out what gifts you have, and using those gifts to serve him, both locally in the local church as well as elsewhere. I encourage you to do that for his glory. Let's pray. Father, again, we just thank you for your love. Um, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. We thank you, Lord, for the teaching of your word concerning the church. We thank you that your son, the Lord Jesus, loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he loves and cares for us individually greatly, but he also cares about the church overall and seeing the church expand and seeing people saved and brought to a knowledge of Christ and built up in him. Help us to love the church in that sense, to care about the mission of this local church, if this is where you've called us to be or whatever other local body you've called us to be in, to be serving you there, to be worshiping you there, to be telling others of the Lord Jesus and bringing them in and discipling them, to be involved in all that you want us to individually be in, involved in, both here in the local church and as you give opportunity in, in, in other ministries. We just thank you for your love and your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.